welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening, David. Yes. How you doing? A little bit thirsty. I, I know. Probably should have taken a drink of this water before we started <laughs> Yeah, recording. I saw it coming. Somehow, I got it in my head that I'd be able to fit in a drink of water before you asked me my name, or before you threw it to me for my name. That's Here, I'll try it again. Hang on a minute. Hello, and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. Ah. I'm David Beck. <laughs> and thank you, <laughs> no, you <laughs> for listening. All right. So anyway, that was fun. Well, let's um, let's not waste any time. Absolutely, we have not. a guest, and there's something. <laughs> let's not waste any time. <laughs> any more time? Sorry. There we go. There we go. Thank you. Um, this guy's got a burning issue. He I wants know. To get to. There's something. Eaten away at it. It is in his craw. This <laughs> yeah, thing. it's stuck there. Stuck. Not going anywhere. <laughs> um, so first, let's uh, let's pay some bills. All right. Uh, well, let's do a couple of things first off. One is an announcement. We mentioned it recently, but I want to try and mention it as often as I can. Sure. So, um, And I'll try to speed through it a little bit. Um, so we are currently compiling the Battleship Pretension Top 50 uh, Original Movie Scores of All Time. So what you'll do... You will email me, Tyler, at BattleshipRetention.com with 10 submissions of the scores that you think absolutely positively belong on the list. You've got the entire month of August to do this. Uh, I will specify to answer a couple of, uh, of uh, questions already. These do need to be original. Uh, soundtracks don't count. But if, if, you know, if it's Beauty and the Beast or if it's one of my favorites, Superfly, uh, where the music and the songs were written specifically for uh, the film... That counts. Uh, it doesn't have to be purely orchestral. There can be lyrics as long as it was written for the film uh, and used in the film. So uh, I think that is it. So once again, your 10 submissions, you can put them in order if you want. I'm not going to count them in that in any particular order. So uh, you're just wasting your time and right. mine. Um, and also feel free to m- multiple scores by the same thing. There's no rules absolutely. against the same uh, composer. Yeah. Or... Which I'm thinking might be uh, come up on my list. While I'll have multiple scores from films by the same director. Oh sure, different composers. I think yes. that's going to happen. Th- that is already that has already uh, started showing up, and that's fine. So, uh, yeah. So you've got uh, you've got until August 31st to do it, and uh, I'm very excited with how the list is shaping up so far. Uh, I expressed some concern a couple weeks ago about how uh, we might have a, like a solid 17, and then after that it drops off uh-huh. to things that are getting maybe one or two votes and don't belong on, belong on any list anywhere. Uh, those fears were unfounded. Um, okay. I think we're going, going to have a very solid top 50. Awesome. So uh, once again, Tyler at BattleshipPretension.com. All right, so there's that. And then also I should, uh, I should specify... Um, that this episode that you're listening to right now is so sponsored. 438. 438. It is sponsored by Mubi. I'm glad now, you pointed that out. Yeah. Now, if you don't know what that is, uh, it's a curated online cinema that brings its members a handpicked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Everyday, everyday Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Right now at Mubi, you can watch The Queen of Versailles, directed by Lauren Greenfield. Uh, one of my ten favorite movies of that year, I believe. Uh, it is it's a, a wonderful movie. It's a wonderful movie that I think is very relevant to our times but and is often very funny. But I think is also very human. 
Um, it is about a, <laughs> I guess you could say the the crumbling of very, of a very wealthy family, and I feel like the human nature is such that we would hear about about that and want to watch a documentary about it and want to say fuck those guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what they have coming. Uh, but the film, while finding humor in their situation and then the people themselves, um, is still, like I said, it still has a heart for them and it still uh, treats them like people who still think the same things and feel the same things that the rest of us do. It's a very wonderful film. I, I can't uh, recommend it highly enough. Uh, so that and more uh, uh, are these, sorry, this movie and more are available at movie.com. And there is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Retention. You can try movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash battleship to redeem now. Let me bring something up. Watch out. You just reminded me of something that happened to me or that I over that I saw recently. Okay. You, that idea of uh, saying, oh, fuck, fuck them. They had it coming to them, Sure. Right? I got on the bus the other day. Mm-hmm. This young woman sitting in a seat. It was a crowded bus. Mm-hmm. Sitting in the seat with her purse and another bag taking up a seat next to her okay. not on her lap like a normal person would do yes to leave a seat open taking up a whole seat on a bus that was full yeah i don't care for that i don't care for her at all a few stops later when it's her turn to get off she goes to pick up her stuff drops her phone out of her purse and it falls on the floor and breaks okay <laughs> should i feel guilty about how much pleasure i got out of this let's throw it over to our guest scott and i I would probably laugh at her, although I wonder if you're talking about my girlfriend, because I think she uses the same tactic <laughs> to uh, ward off weirdos. Well, I guess, yeah, there has to, there's a certain amount of weirdo warding off you want to do when you're out in public. Yeah. See, David, yeah, but, you're a man. You're not a lady. Right. You don't have to worry about uh, some creepy guy sidling up next to you. Well, you never you know. know. Well, you might. Yeah. I don't know. There's with probably this, fewer concerns, though. With this you dapper new I, beard you've got. What I want... <laughs> here's something else that happens on the bus that... The wheels uh, go round and round? <laughs> Drives me insane. Um, <laughs> All no. through the town. Um, so there's a thing. There's a. It's a phenomenon. There are entire. There's literally entire blogs devoted to pictures of this mm-hmm. of men taking up too much room, essentially sitting down on the bus and, and spre- just, spreading yeah. their legs to the point where they're bleeding into the seats yeah. next to them. Yeah. I try not to do it. I, I understand that it mm-hmm. is the way that males are often just accustomed to sitting yeah you know? i don't want to i don't want to squish my testicles david <laughs> sure yeah uh you know I, I literally i can't cross my legs there's so much going on <laughs> yeah, now. it's just um no but um sometimes i'll be there trying to be you know uh what's the word considerate about mm-hmm. it and some guy will sit next to me and sit with his and like yeah essentially brushing up against my thigh yeah and i want to be like Oh, I'm flattered, but I'm not interested. Mm. <laughs> I feel like that might that might be what gets to them. That exact right? thing happened when I saw Mission Impossible Rogue Nation to the extent that the guy ended up yelling at the man next to him and moving seats. Oh wow. Yeah. Wow. It was very alarming. What did he what did he yell? Did he just say Stop I, I guess my it wasn't thigh. quite yelling, but it was okay. loud enough that I could hear that there was a commotion going on and yeah, he was like, This guy keeps rubbing up against me. <laughs> He's there, cowboys, something yeah, like that. Much. Yeah. That'd be good. But I feel like with like an assertive like male behavior like that if i turn it around to it being like to essentially yeah. assuming this person might be coming on to me okay that might get that person right where they live because i feel like people who are people who take up too much room 
are probably homophobes. <laughs> that's what I think. That's that's the the jumping from Here's A the to C. If you're for a me. homophobe, you probably you won't necessarily take up too much room. But if you take up too much room, you're probably a homophobe. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what square Absolutely. rectangle kind of Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So basically, those people are homophobes slash uh, fighting their own urges. Right, obvious. Every with every in the closet fiber of their being. And that woman who dropped her phone deserves to be mocked to the ends of the earth. Right. right? You didn't ask me. I think, yes, you should feel guilty for the amount of pleasure that you took in that. Yeah. There's a, I I there's know, a I, German I, phrase, right, that uh, talks about this? Yeah. There's a German phrase for everything, but that one's schadenfreude. Yes. Um, I don't know. But, yeah, I ran it by my wife, and she was like, ha ha. Well, if a woman said it's okay, then. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Although, I, I got to say, like, that is a thing that re- will regularly happen with Jen and myself is I will, I will question my own, my motivation or my general attitude one day. And I'll say, Jen, what do you think about this? And she's like, ah, the hell with it. Just go ahead. Right. And it's like, ah, oh, awesome. Somebody <laughs> who has a vested interest in keeping me happy uh, right. has just allowed me to, has just said it's perfectly okay for me to just uh, do everything by my own, uh, my own whims. Well, I'm glad we got that out in the open. Indeed. Uh, Scott, what did you want to talk about? Yeah. What's on your mind? Well, Lay like I said, me, I, I, I'm all fired up. For several reasons. Uh, But in this particular instance, there's a motion picture coming out this weekend that'll be out by the time people are listening to this called Fantastic Four or Fanforstic, as Mm -hmm. people who look at too much advertising call it. Um, (laughs) But uh, this movie was directed... You don't make it... Like, advertising's everywhere. Well, you still look at it too much. It's not your fault, but... Okay, I see what you're saying. When I'm driving and I see a billboard, I like to shut my eyes... That's the spirit. Better safe than sorry. I'm just putting up pieces of tape on my windshield <laughs> to roughly block out where I know right. the ads will be. It's working out so far. Um, but anyway, it's directed by Josh Trank, who got wonderful notices for his, I think, first film, Chronicle. Mm-hmm. You guys see Chronicle? I did not. I you did. did. Yeah, yes. you liked it, right? Uh, yes, I liked a lot of it. I didn't necessarily like the found footage element of it, but uh, I thought it was pretty good. I was surprised. Pretty well-directed movie. Liked. Got good reviews. Yeah. People were into it. All of a sudden, he takes this Fantastic Four movie... And these reports start coming in from the set that he's being difficult. Mm. And rather than assume that maybe the director who made this movie that everybody likes knows what he's doing and is having a tough time with the studios, everyone's like, well, it's clearly his fault. It's it is such a it's a thing that we've talked about before. I think the one we we pointed to when when we first mentioned this was Terrence Howard uh, with Iron Man, two that there was talk of like him being uh, troublesome. Right. And and it's like. It's it's very easy to say uh, to publicly put him out there as the problem because he's the public face, and it's e- it's much easier to dislike one person than some vague entity. Um, and even though Josh Trank is, you know, it's not like he's a household name or anything right. like that, and people don't even know what he looks like. I don't. Um, but it's just this. It plays into a certain attitude that we have, which is. Oh, the temperamental artist just wants everything his way. But don't we want to be seeing those kind of movies? Like people keep talking about how bland superhero movies are. And then they're like, oh, this guy's trying to do something. I don't know about that. Yeah. It's like this dream now is for everybody to make a really good Batman movie. And that's like the most people hope for for a director (laughs) (laughs) is to do something by the company line, but do it really well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Please. It's yeah, it is. It's very frustrating. And I think what gets me is that because, yeah, I saw the same stuff on Facebook and Twitter right. and that sort of thing. And um, and I think what gets me is um, 
and this is going to sound super uh, elitist of me, uh, and or just superior, I guess. Um, people who should know better are posting links to this kind of thing. Uh, yeah, and it's just like, come on, like you know that studios are the worst, right? <laughs> yeah, and right. this is Fox, who like yeah. has time and time again upset artists' uh, desires. I mean, th- it sounds like the same story that happened with the Alien 3. <laughs> and no, now every- the first place. Yeah, and now everyone's like, oh, obviously David Fincher's a genius, and what were they thinking? Yeah. But the same thing happens with a new up-and-coming director, and they're like, well, the studio probably knows what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then also... What that means is Josh Trank's 7 is right around the corner. <laughs> Can oh, only hope. Good God. <laughs> um, and, that's, and what I've also seen is a couple of things that, you know, because the film is apparently not very good right i'm sure um, it's not very good yeah uh, i'm still planning on seeing it because i'm curious um because you got that movie pass. and i have that movie pass <laughs> and i enjoy the taste of popcorn and so um the movie pass doesn't you still have to pay for the popcorn yes i do so it's like paying for at least half a movie ticket yeah but here's the thing i was gonna get that popcorn no matter what all right so were you if probably. you stayed home you weren't gonna get the popcorn <laughs> oh that's true but why would i want to do that i can't have popcorn at home <laughs> Not movie popcorn, anyway. I've been, I've been like for years. I've been like a microwave popcorn guy. Mm. My wife has brought me to the light. Oh, do you have a popper? No, no don't. Just buying kernels and making them in like a pot. Oh, okay. It's so delicious. I don't Is know it? why I've been wasting my time and money and life. Yeah, <laughs> with a, I get like bowls that are a third more full, mm-hmm. and for. A dollar less for a pack, I, it, go, it lasts me two weeks long. All the math works out in my favor, <laughs> and it's delicious. You've clearly people, run the numbers on this yeah, very extensively. Just, just, buy, David, just buy the kernels. It's part of adulthood, you know? Uh, right. we, all, we all cross that line at some point when we realize, oh, this microwave popcorn ain't shit, which is true. Um, it's, what a, it's, gonna just s- a, it's a ripoff. Oh, yes, there's that as well. That speaking Orville of, Redenbacher can go straight to hell. Speaking of things not being shit, it reminds me of... Uh, when I worked at a, I worked at a nursing home, mm-hmm. and uh, well, I don't like where this is going. Uh, every uh, I, I, and I served food. That's what I did there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, for every morning, there was like a, a starch. It would be a muffin some days, or certain kinds of toast or whatever. And this one woman, her name was Bessie, because mm-hmm. um, that's the type of names you have with people yes. uh, in nursing homes ten years ago. Uh, fifteen years ago, yeah, a long time. Um, anyway, one of my first days. I brought Bessie her breakfast, which included a muffin. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I don't want this muffin. I want the cinnamon raisin toast. And I was like, oh, sorry, Bessie. We don't have the cinnamon raisin toast today. All we got is these muffins. And she goes, these muffins ain't shit. <laughs> <laughs> I know, Bessie. I know. <laughs> um, so what I was going to say is that um, so people have been commenting. Now that the film is not doing, it's right. also not doing well. I've seen people talk about uh, not merely taking the studio's side when you hear about Josh Trank, the troublesome director, but now the idea of him pulling out of that Star Wars uh, right, or being fired or, or being fired. Yeah, I heard people saying almost not not using the, these words, but in their tone, essentially saying "good riddance." Yeah, and based and on what? Like, <laughs> based on what? Yeah. Based on, uh, first off, none of us have seen Fantastic yeah, Four right. yet. You've seen one movie that he's yeah, made, right. and everyone liked it. <laughs> and also, why are we on this guy's side? And whatever, po- and almost everybody who not uh, a lot of the reviews that I've read have said that uh, Fantastic Four goes wrong 
in the last 40 minutes when it becomes a superhero movie. Before that, when it's a sci-fi movie, it's pretty good, apparently. Yeah, that's some reviews have been saying that. So it's like, well, Star Wars movies, <laughs> though they are more fantasy than sci-fi, like, I could see him doing very well at that. It's just, it's so strange the way, like, people will just buy, like, what a studio is selling that, and why, it's, I, I sometimes wonder, and maybe this is a whole episode, just if... If the auteur theory is all well and good in, in, as a theory, but when it comes to Hollywood, and especially when we think of stuff like superhero movies or like big franchise things that the studio is hardly going to let you do your own thing with. Right. Or at least to the extent that you could. Um, like, does the auteur theory even apply now uh, in a situation like that? I mean... <sighs> This is another thing that like if, <laughs> grinds if, my gears. You asked me to work that phrase into it. And okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but just some people have been saying that the auteur theory is like perfectly exemplary in case of Marvel movies where they're dealing with, you know, they're working within a studio system to create something quote unquote personal, mm-hmm. which yes, that is one way in which the auteur theory was applied when it was first created, but it was also applied to Ingmar Bergman yeah. <laughs> and Victoria Sica, you know, yeah. the theory was that, you know, it didn't matter what kind of movie you were making. Not that you had to be working in a certain system and expressing yourself. Mm-hmm. It's just if you're expressing yourself in any way, that was the auteur theory. Hmm. Well, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I wasn't planning on seeing Fantastic Four. Um, I'll let you know how it is. Okay. Scott, are you going to see it? I think so. Let's see yeah. it together. We'll be good friends. All right, let's do it. But um, for, I, I'm, I'm glad if, if a director, a promising director, is being re- removed or removing himself from a franchise, as with the Star Wars thing, mm-hmm. good. You know, uh, let him make the movies that I'm more likely to see. Yeah. It's how I felt with the Ava DuVernay, like, yeah. oh, she's not going to make the Black Panther movie. Go- good. Let her make a movie about the Black Panthers. That would be much more <laughs> oh, interesting Oh, watch to me. out. Yeah, I think in this case, it's like, I like it's Chronicle. It's racist, by the way. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it is a little racist. <laughs> but I feel like he could probably do just as well in a big superhero movie. I don't know that his voice is something I really need in, like, a intensely personal project and maybe it is i would love to be proven wrong but he seemed like the kind of guy who would flourish when giving a certain amount of room in a bigger movie yeah Do i you, think so we were just talking in the movie journal that we recorded uh, right before this um peek behind the curtain we, we do both episodes the same night mm-hmm. you um, mentioned that like every episode by okay. the way <laughs> um uh we were talking about cop car which i saw yeah. this week which is directed by john watts who is the director right. of the next spider-man movie it, maybe maybe my like uh bias against you know studios and franchise uh people like that uh is informing this but do you think there's a certain element of like okay this guy is a you know a new uh an, an, a new voice he's got uh some marketable talent in assembling mm-hmm. a movie that's gonna be uh you know uh translatable to young people or whatever let's scoop him up before he gets too confident right scoop him up before oh yeah he can establish himself too it much. totally is and then when one of those guys like bucks against the system they're like oh we didn't see this coming yeah, yeah. this was the deal and then they put word out that oh this guy's being a problem oh yeah and, and that's then, the thing is that studios have so much more influence over the press than yeah. a second time director you know working yeah. on his first studio movie yeah so let's uh the battleship retention company line is that josh trank is a hero <laughs> yeah, absolutely <laughs> a super all no, uh, I just assume that artists probably have a good reason, and yeah. I, I'd rather take their side automatically than the yeah. studio line. Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's talk about earbuds. Okay, yeah, real quick. All right, um, we've talked before about tweakedaudio.com. What's up? 
tweaked audio. They make great earbuds. Hmm. And they've made great earbuds for years, and you've been able to get them using our offer code with for a great deal for years. Now they have a new product, new product line. That's still, right. ear, still earbuds. Yeah, yeah. But these are specifically sport focused. Mm-hmm. They've got they come in cool sporty colors. I'm looking at yours right there. Yeah, like neon orange. Yeah, uh, neon orange accents. It's mostly gray. It's yeah. tasteful is the thing that I like about right. it. Right, and it's, it's tasteful, but it says I'm for sports. Yeah, and what's and what's good about that bright orange is like let's say you're running late at night on a dark road, <laughs> sure. and then someone yeah. drives by and they're like you know. Th- as people do on a dark road, there's veering back and forth, right. just really exploring the space. But then they see, whoa, what's that flash of orange? I better stay over here. So these things, they're very practical and very safe. Uh, but they are actually, I've been, you just got yours because they yes. came in the post office box. I got them this past weekend. I, this is the first chance I had to get, to get them to you. I've been using them for uh, the better part of a week now, mm-hmm. and I love them because they have the sound that Tweaked Audio Always has. Yeah. But for like, I mean, we I talked already about public transportation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, okay, I'm not that much of a sports guy. Mm. I, I get on like the elliptical. That's yeah. that's what I do. But I walk my dog and I spend a lot of time in public transit, which is kind of like a sport. Sure. It's a very physical activity. Mm. There's a lot of jostling. Uh, these, so now that they sound great, they're sturdy and they have this awesome design that like, like it's gonna sound weird, but they like lock into your ear. Yeah, the moment it's really cool. The moment I you gave me my pair, I threw them in my ear, and I was immediately this. This is a a testament to how boring adulthood is. I was immediately excited. Yeah, because I was like, oh, I can't wait to get to the gym and be able to drown out sound better. Right, and yeah, they do that, and uh, and also like because I also like do like the elliptical and various other things, and like. And, uh, you know, I've used earbuds before where they're not necessarily meant for, as you say, jostling. Right. And so with these, like, they're not going anywhere. I'm very yeah. excited about it. I have, because you, you get to kind of push them in a little bit. Yeah. And so I've gotten in the habit of, not out loud, but mentally just going, boop, every time I put the earbuds in. Because I, I feel like I'm like. Listeners, fi- you can do that if you want. Yeah, you can, boop. Anyway, they're called Hegon, H-E-G-O-N-E. Mm-hmm. We're still guessing on the pronunciation. We yes, to, I forgot to email them and find yeah, out. Yeah, need to confirm with with the fellas uh, and ladies over there at tweakedaudio.com. Nope, um, men only. Okay, but uh, anyway, they're fantastic earbuds. Uh, I we you know not only not only they're sponsored, we actually use them and enjoy yes, them quite absolutely. a bit. Um, so go to tweakedaudio.com and then at checkout use the offer code pretension mm-hmm. and you'll get one third off. And no shipping charges. It's tweakedaudio.com, offer code, pretension. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. What is it that we're getting into? Well. This was Scott's idea. Yeah, this is all him. the the topic? On the list of topics, because Scott is nice enough, and we always appreciate it, because I've been doing this for... What is it, 438 episodes? This is 438. 438. Plus all the movie journals and supplements and live shows. Yeah. And BP's award ceremonies. All the extra we stuff we've done. We are wasting our lives. Uh, oh, I love it. No, we got that tweaked money coming in. And so, um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, so Scott was nice enough to provide us with just a long list of topics, and this was among them. And uh, how, what are we talking about today, and, and how did you arrive there as a topic? Well, I'm trying to remember how I arrived there because I did send this list a while ago initially, <laughs> but um, I'm glad we took this long to get to it actually because my feelings on 
each side, there's not really sides, but each end of things have evolved considerably. Uh, we're talking loosely about realism versus theatricality. I'm not even totally comfortable with theatricality as the That's, word. That was going to be like the first place I yeah. went is how to define that. I, uh, is it just non-realism? I suppose so. Any sort of surrealist bent, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I was trying to look up good antonyms for realism earlier, but thesaurus.com is a nightmare for my computer to load, so I never got around to it. Hmm. Um, <laughs> but we all, I feel like we all have a basic idea of what the opposite of, or some opposites of realism would be. Right. I feel like it's a really good like podcast conversation and microcosm of, I was going to... But <laughs> and that's whether it be I was going to find out how to pronounce those earbuds, but I didn't. I was going to find a, a good antonym, but I didn't because podcasting does not pay for this kind of thing. Doesn't pay for a good thesaurus program. And, you know, you got to record when you record. If you're writing, you know, you can be like, I'll put that off for a little bit. Exactly. But I had to show up here at this time to talk. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So uh, although I have made that mistake right in. Like <laughs> writing and not like not having internet connection and there was one time that i couldn't remember an actor's name oh, and yeah. so i put like two question marks and i was like i'll get back to that when i whatever and i ended up posting a review <laughs> with like so and so played by question mark question mark <laughs> yeah it, I always capital- it wasn't very long but i did catch it i always capitalize and bold those so i'll probably notice yeah, mm. yeah. that's my trick um and i usually proofread too i guess i was in a rush with that one yeah. anyway um, but yeah, let's get, let's, let's talk about theatricality or non-realism first. Um, because it could, like you, like you're saying, it could mean a lot of different right. things. Uh, a movie that is on my mind just because we were mentioned it briefly, uh, in the movie journal is Greg Araki's smiley face hmm. or really any Greg Araki movie, <laughs> which generally his movies do not take place in reality. Um, mysterious skin is probably the most, uh, down to earth, but it has its own. And even things. even that yeah. has some outlandish. Yeah, elements. and White Bird and a Blizzard is not like as uh, Gonzo as his other movies, no. but it still has fantastical elements. That is the only one of his I've seen. Uh, is that true? That is true. Oh. I've heard that. Did you like it? Uh, pretty well. Okay. I've heard that Kaboom is directed in a style that is not certainly not necessarily realistic, but it's more just we're showing people doing outlandish things as opposed to we're shooting it in an outlandish way. Okay. Um, but I have not seen it. Okay. But, um, smiley face is a movie that is theatrical is not the way that you would think to describe it because it's not in any way like lush. It's very, it's almost gross looking (laughs) (laughs) intentionally. So, but it's not realistic. And so would that fit into the conversation we're talking about here? Yeah, I would say so. Okay. I, I, I guess my point is anytime an artist warps our conception of reality. And I guess another thing worth noting is that there are many critics who feel that realism itself is a construct and that is its own form of artifice. And just as many artificial decisions go into creating a, a sense of reality as, you know, for last year, Marion Bat or something. I feel, yeah, there's probably, there's something to that. Yeah, um, I agree. Well, and there's also just if, like if we want to break it down completely, um, there's that idea that the minute you cut, then right. reality is broken, and the fact, and just even the fact of you're closer in on this actor's face than you would ever be in life <laughs> to anybody right, in yeah. life, and then also there's why is there music here? I mean, it just you can have the most hyper hyper realistic film just like the most verite film but 
the minute you cut, you know, to it's like, oh, this guy's looking over there and that's what he's looking at. While it may while it makes a lot of sense and we all understand what they're trying to do and they're certainly not trying to remove us from reality, that cut could be seen as like as opposed to just panning the camera over so that because there are no cuts in life as like today (laughs) has been an uninterrupted take for me. (laughs) Uh, I don't know about you guys. Except when you blink. Right. Oh, no. Yeah. It's like Stranger Than Paradise. Oh, you're you're <laughs> blowing my mind, Nye. Um, but yeah, and so like I I don't necessarily want to want to you know harp on that too much, but I feel like even that could make could be could be used to make an argument that true realism could have quotes around it anytime you talk about it. Well, I'm glad that you went there actually because I realized as I was kind of doing some light research is that this division is really where movies began with the Lumiere brothers making these, you know, static shot documentaries, train pulling into a station, workers mm-hmm. leaving a factory. And then like two years later, George Melies doing these crazy special effects movies that are mostly built around cutting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about stopping the camera at the right point, inserting a new actor, a new object, and suddenly it's appearing in the frame. It looks right. like magic. Um, but he, I mean, he himself started out as a documentary filmmaker and then he discovered that trick by accident when his camera jammed. Mm-hmm. And then a hearse suddenly appeared in the image. Um, so this divide, I think, and that's its most like kind of elaborate and extensive form where you have George Melies doing like pure imagination and the Lumiere brothers doing pretty as much as close you can get to reality before sound and color come in. Mm-hmm. It's, but it's, um, I guess it's sort of subjective. I just thought of this cause you mentioned color when color was first introduced into movies audiences tended to think of it as a fantastical element right because it did look kind of ridiculous yeah Yeah, but i mean and also just because it was there was a there was a norm that they were accustomed to true so Mm -hmm. black and white was seen as more realistic yes than whereas now i feel like black and white is used for i don't know dream sequences or flashbacks or Or directors trying to look especially artsy i guess (laughs) yeah do you remember, uh, what's the Woody Allen movie, Celebrity? Mm-hmm. I never in, saw it, but okay. Okay, it's in black and white, and there's a part where they go to the opening of a movie, and someone makes fun of the director for being the type of director who makes his movies in black and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it might be the best part of the movie. <laughs> I think that's a great movie. DiCaprio's pretty good in that movie. Yeah, and yeah, B.B. Newworth fillets a banana. Now we're, th- now we're talking. <laughs> so um, before we, it might not hurt to um, to sort of define terms a little bit and i guess the second one we don't even have an official term for aside from not realism or at least <laughs> not trying to mimic reality um you can call it theatricality if you want or, or uh, stylization or something like that but um or surrealism um like when we talk about realism what do we That's talk about a good, i feel like stylization is a yeah maybe okay to what we're talking because it is not again it's not realism but like again Realism itself is a is a style. You know, I keep thinking yeah. of Did you ever see Keen, that movie with Damien Lewis? No, um, I Damien. heard it was great. It's very like handheld down to earth type of like you know what would be the word gritty, which is a mm-hmm. word that I gritty and edgy are two words <laughs> I try to never use in reviews because I feel like they don't actually mean anything anymore. Yeah. But um it gritty I understand of, from a from a from a stylistic standpoint, but edgy almost always has to do with content and tone. I'm like, right. ugh, <laughs> and I just roll my eyes at it. Um, but Keen, so Keen has this look that I think we associate with realism these days. Um, but it's also 
entirely from the point of view of a mentally ill man. So we don't know mm-hmm. really. If oh, it's interesting. So that's, again, there, there are plenty of foils we could throw in the, you know, wrinkles that come into any of, any of this, but I feel like I cut you off. Well, just stylization that, is what we're talking about. Yeah. That and, uh, versus realism. And I'm reluctant to say versus, but that was how we, uh, agreed right. on, uh, in the email chain. Um, so when we talk about realism, what are we talking about? And it might not hurt to throw out some titles so that people have a specific idea. Yeah, I mean, um, I think... Scott, in, your thoughts. In the modern context, I'd look at something like Zero Dark Thirty um, hmm. as something that's trying for a realist uh, aesthetic. Uh, Paul Greengrass, his mm-hmm. films, generally. Um, and I'm blanking on uh, other modern examples. Because I mostly went historical with this, actually. Oddly enough, but, when, I, when I think... David, when you say when when you think of a movie, let's stick with modern, like uh, in the last two or three years, um, movies that are realistic. Like, what do you think of? Oh, I did think of one more actually. While you're thinking about okay. that, okay. Um, the films of Mia Hansen Love, who's uh, Eden, kind of ex- made her a bigger name this year. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you, either of you guys have seen it, but um, no. she makes these very intimate movies, but they take place over this incredible span of time. Um, but they're very observed uh, a lot of handheld camera work too mm-hmm. um and she finds a way to and this is something that richard brody objects to in the uh sort of abstract the way realism is usually usually used where it's more observational um her films can be very introspective and um so i think that's another limit of realism is that they can be it can just be an outside looking in mm-hmm. you know you don't get the interior life of somebody that you get with more abstract forms um, it's it oh, sorry go ahead no no if you have something to say about that that'd be um, better than and yet <laughs> and yet it is still yeah it's it's so strange because if you go over stylistic uh overly stylistic even in an attempt to put us inside the mind of somebody else um or inside the emotional state of somebody else like there is such a thing as doing that too much that it becomes i don't know that the style then seems to call attention to itself um and it winds up further distancing me than if I were to simply be looking at the actor playing a character and being asked, asked to sympathize with them instead of empathize. And so, I don't know, it's, it's a very fine... But when it's done well, it's like one of the most amazing things ever. Um, but it's a very fine line, I think, that the filmmaker has to walk. Yeah, I mean, I thought of two people in that regard who can perhaps go too far. Uh, well, I guess three, because one of them is a team filmmaker, but Pal and Pressburger... Um, especially with the Red Shoes and Tales of Hoffman, um, are very abstract movies that mm-hmm. um, can feel like maybe closed off if you're looking at them from a certain perspective. But to me, they're very affecting because of the artistry involved and mm-hmm. the it becomes like a painting or something. It becomes affecting because of the way they're doing it, not because of the story they're telling necessarily. Well, it's um, there's something to be said for it. It's almost like how satire for exist for for example um you know it it exaggerates things to get to to make deeper truths right more apparent sometimes i feel like artistry and theatricality can actually be a way of just like of almost like pinpointing or focusing on the specific part of the psychology or theme that you're getting at i mean this is not a movie but the tv series hannibal mm-hmm. is something right. that is very ornate and purple and baroque and theatrical, but has a lot of, uh, very, uh, realistic psychological 
implications and things that it's trying to explore, I think. It's odd that you brought up a TV show because when I'm thinking of, there was a movie that I was thinking of and then a TV show that both of which appear to be realistic and appear to be trying to emulate the world that we live in. But when you look at the characters, again, they're shot in a very straightforward way, but when you look at the way other characters aside from the lead, the way they are written and the way they're played, it's so exaggerated that you start to think, why is everybody acting like this? And then you start to realize, oh, because we're seeing it from this person's perspective where the world looks like the world we know, but everybody hates him. <laughs> and it, so I'm thinking of falling down okay. and career enthusiasm <laughs> where everybody except Larry, who of course is goofy in his own way, but every, everybody, you know, that he incorpor- that that he encounters like in a sing you know in a, sing- a specific episode or something like that as opposed to his friends who who uh, recur, um, they're sort of these grotesque people who their whole. I remember when we first had had Wayne Fetterman on, uh, I infuriated him by asking a question like this, um, which was, "Your character isn't a re- isn't a real character. He is instead an obstacle. So how how as an actor do you take a character who's sole motivation though he's not aware of it is to oppose larry david how do you take that and turn it into a real character and and, and of course wayne was like what <laughs> didn't understand and uh, which which is fine it cut through some of the haze a little bit but um but i feel like those are characters who clearly they were whether larry david i know he's not the official director but he's you know he runs that thing whether he's meaning to or not he's basically telling people Everything about you hates me. That's what you're playing. <laughs> there is no reason. There is no selflessness. You simply see me as an asshole and you want to stop me from doing what I want to do. That's what you're doing. And when it, like, how often in life or how often in, in, in film do you run across characters that are written and played in that way? That they're, they're antagonists but have no specific motivation except to be antagonists. And so I feel like that show is is almost Polanski esque, <laughs> and he's somebody who brings the style into it as well. Right. As far as a world that is just looking to oppress and oppose our main character, but I don't. I feel like I would never think of Kirby Enthusiasm as like a highly stylized show, cartoonish perhaps. But in that regard we are seeing the world very much through the character of Larry David's eyes. Well, and that's a Woody Allen thing to do almost. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought of uh, the way he repeatedly cast Wallace Shawn as this like ridiculously sexually accomplished <laughs> and also intellectually accomplished. It's always like his ex- everything he wants to be is Wallace Shawn of all people, um, which I always thought was a wonderful casting choice. Uh, Wallace Shawn is always a wonderful <laughs> That's true, yes. Um, okay, so I there's a, a number of things that I have like put a pin in that we've said that I want okay, to get okay. back to. Um, and I wanted to get back to Paul Greengrass because I don't know that I've ever thought of him as realistic. And I've had this, uh, I think we, going back to, it was years, I know, because it was at your old place. Mm-hmm. We talked about, uh, with Matthias Stork about, um, what, what, what chaos what, cinema, chaos cinema. Yeah. I, do you think of the, uh, like French impressionistic filmmakers as realistic? Like, uh, Renoir or, uh, or like who? Truffaut? Like with Shoot the Piano Player, is that a realistic movie? Not Shoot the Piano Player. I would say 400 Blows, though, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jules and Jim. Okay. Because I, I guess I don't. I think there's so much in the 
in the editing that is unnatural okay. that I don't think of them as realistic. And that's kind of how I've always thought of Paul Greengrass. I know that he's very like in the moment and it feels, you know, like it's not, it's sort of unflinching, but when he does, especially in his born films more sure. so than like uh bloody Sunday, um, I always want to, I always have to make sure I don't say Sunday <laughs> yeah. bloody Sunday cause that's a U2 song and a different movie. Um, but uh, especially like, unlike bloody Sunday maybe is realistic, but when I think of the, the Born Identity, the Born movies that he did, I almost think of them as impressionistic action movies. So I don't know that I think of that as realism. Yeah, I guess I apply that kind of impressionism more to Tony Scott or Neville Dean Taylor um, than Paul Greengrass. Who I, I get what you're saying with the editing, but it's still focusing in on moments that are supposed to be like a one to one thing. You could add them up, and they would result in a full action that somebody could be doing in front of you. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see. Yeah. Uh, all right. You asked me what I think of when I think of recent uh, realistic movies. Sure. And I feel like we couldn't, we shouldn't do this episode without talking about quote unquote mumblecore. Okay. Oh, yeah. Which is sure. a, a phrase that I hate because uh, it's basically. And I should specify real quick while you say that uh, one of the shows in the fleet, I Do Movies Badly, the, just kicked off a recent series about mumblecore. All of August, there'll be, the gym will be talking yeah. about mumblecore. All right. That's enough shilling. <laughs> um,. I like what Jim does, and yeah, I, no, wanna, I, do. I want people show. to. I want people to listen. Um, He's part of our fleet, David. Come on! But I don't like that phrase because it feels like technology allowed a certain aesthetic to develop, and then after a few films had come out, people externally applied right. this grouping that I don't think. It's also true it, of film noir, though. Uh, that's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's more like film noir is more than just technology, though. I, I feel no, like, I, I, know. I feel like most of what we think of as the mumblecore aesthetic is just because that's the like that technology became available to make to make movies cheap. And they looked a certain way because that's what the cameras looked like. But it's not just the aesthetics. I think it's also the performance style, um, the languid nature of the dialogue and the way scenes will stretch on for some would say far too long. I wonder, David, would you have as much of a problem with calling a mumble with, with designating it a specific thing if it were called a less insulting name? <laughs> well, I wanted to, cause I remember that, um, we were, uh, I guess I, he, we, we had, uh, Aaron Katz and, um, Andrew Reed. No, mm-hmm. Is that, yeah, Aaron yeah. Katz and um, on the show years and years ago Many when they were promoting ago. Quiet, they'd made Dance Party USA. They were promoting Quiet City. Mm-hmm. Um, this was at the forefront of the movement. Yes, and I was friends with Reed to a certain extent. We worked together at the ArcLight. We went to see Comedy Death Ray mm-hmm. together a lot, and so he was the first person to tell me like. I just came from South by Southwest. Have you heard this term "mumblecore" that they're <laughs> saying? And I said it should be called emo realism <laughs> and i still think that would be funnier it'd be funnier but that. far more demeaning yeah you could call it on wheelism <laughs> how's that that sounds like meals on wheels <laughs> um but do we have anything more to say about mumblecore i feel like there's a there's a lot that, there that does seem to be uh i don't necessarily think that those movies are like I feel like they're not really on people's radar really anymore. Like it really did yeah, seem to be like, like a, a five year. Yeah. I would say span. From, what? 2004, 2005 to yeah. 2009. Uh, but within but, that, I, I feel like that is what people would point to as, Oh, look at that. It's, it's, they, maybe they're a bit lofty when they were <laughs> talking about this, but they'd say like, Oh, this is like our Italian neorealism or uh, this certainly has its roots in that. But here's the thing. Or here's where I see a difference. In that 
the quote unquote mumblecore movies, um, and you guys are making a case for it actually being a movement, um, are maybe a little more solipsistic than the neorealist movies, where I feel like neorealism, there's a certain like consciousness to them, where it's like, you know, with like the bicycle thieves, you're getting this glimpse at, 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 at these very lower class people, and it, and, and it has, it engenders empathy. Whereas as, the as if by movies, the end of it, they are saying, and this is just one <laughs> right. story. Whereas the Mumblecore movies are kind of, they probably only seem realistic to middle class white hipsters like us <laughs> who, who can actually uh, relate to that lifestyle. There's probably plenty of people who see Mumblecore movies and are like, it can't relate to it at all. Which, uh, which so does you know that what? count as realism? But I, I would say, I would imagine they could still recognize that where it's coming from is a real place. Even if you want to look down on say just privileged white people whining about privileged white people stuff. Uh-huh. Um, that's still something people do. <laughs> it does bring up an interesting question that I hadn't thought of before, which is as we're defining realism. Now we have, we, we seem to have an understanding of what that means stylistically, but as far as content and character, uh, character reactions and character ac- actions and such, um, is something that seems perfectly reasonable to somebody who's been in that situation. Uh, will that look heightened and ridiculous and completely unrealistic oh. to someone not in that circumstance? I have a perfect example. Okay. My ex-girlfriend hated <laughs> Before Sunrise. Okay. Because she was like, no one talks like that. And I was like, you don't know the people that I know <laughs> yeah. or knew when I was in my late teens and early right. 20s. Mm. We'll definitely talk like that. I love that movie partially because I think it, to a certain extent, I think Before Sunrise recognizes that these are young people who think they know more than they do. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. And, um, but uh, that, I think that's a perfect example of what, you, what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, and people often forget what Before Sun, the whole Before trilogy is that uh, Richard Linklater is about 10 years older than the characters he's portraying. Right. So he, if you apply that sort sense of distance, um, I think especially it comes out. But I, your uh, ex-girlfriend's objection there is one I, you hear all the time about, well, that's not the way people talk, so it's not realistic, as though either of those are true or bad. Um, but yeah. Well, that, and the other way, um, because that, that, I mean, that's Before Sunrise is one where I, I do think that some people talk like that. But there's another movie that I love uh, called The Fabulous Baker Boys. Which heard is, of it, haven't seen it. Okay, it's essentially, uh, uh, I, I, I wish I wish Tyler hadn't run away. <laughs> oh, here he is. Okay. Um, What's up? Huh? The Fabulous Baker Boys is essentially a Tom Waits song come to life. No one <laughs> in the movie actually behaves the way that people really do. Mm-hmm. It's all kind of heightened and theatrical and gin-soaked, but I love it because of that, because it's, I think there's a um, cohesion to it or, or mm-hmm. a consistency or an emotional truth to it right yeah that's that's perfect that's perfect yeah. that, that mm-hmm. goes to a lot of uh and that'll bring me into i'm not sure if fabulous bigger boys um counts but there's something i have written down here as a note which is melodrama which is yes. something that is mm-hmm. generally not that realistic but is it's a melodrama is almost like a non-funny satire to me in that everything's exaggerated because there are truths underneath that are being brought to the surface by by blowing things up well, melodrama's you know been around practically since cinema has been invented, but I think we would all agree it really flourished in the fifties mm-hmm. um, with Douglas Sirk and with uh, Tennessee, so many Tennessee Williams plays being adapted and other Ely Kazan type stuff. 
Um, and the whole 1950s is a really interesting intersection between this sort of realism aesthetic and a really heightened kind of theatricality because you have uh, method acting coming up on the rise and people viewed that as this more real gritty form of acting. But meanwhile, the aesthetics were getting more and more expressive almost every year. You know, you start at the 1950s with like uh, all about Eve or something. And that's, you know, pretty straightforward movie. By 1955, you got Night of the Hunter, you got Picnic. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote down some others. You got, uh, well, Johnny Guitar is 54. Um, Kiss Me Deadly is 55. You know, these movies that get more more expressive as though it can't keep up with the acting, which is trying to, in some ways, get deeper. But it's also, I mean, traditional method acting could be really flourished on its own too. Yeah. I mean, when you look at something like rebel without a cause, yes. <laughs> uh, or, or that early Brando stuff as great as it is. And as, as engaging as it is, you watch it now, uh, and people, people laugh would at say, it. Yeah, absolutely. And I hate, I mean, I love seeing those movies in theaters because they're so visually ravishing, but mm-hmm. you're just waiting for somebody to laugh at it. <laughs> oh, sure. And people yeah. always will. Yeah. Um, and so, I was thinking about this the other day, actually, about like what, how, how does, what is melodrama and how has it been allowed to be, well, allowed to be? Because I think anybody looking at it would say, well, that's not how people act. (laughs) And yet we're all, uh, we're all okay with it. Although I guess maybe not since melodramatic is something that has been termed, uh, you know, used as a negative term. Yeah. Yeah. But I started to think like, then why, why do people tolerate it so much? And why do some people champion it? And I had this thought of like melodrama. It's like, yes, it's not how people act, but it's how we all would act if we could. Well, it's how, it's how we're all acting inside. Yeah. It's how we all feel, you know, just like if you, if something hurts you, if something makes you angry you would love, like, you're screaming inside. <laughs> we are you all recognize... eternal teenagers inside. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you guys were talking about film noir last week, and melodrama kind of flourished alongside film noir. And mm-hmm. it maybe, I think, satisfied, especially for uh, female audiences, the same thing that uh, film noir was satisfying for men. Mm-hmm. In the, this expression of all these emotions after the war, they're repressing all this turmoil that they've been through. They probably lost cl- people very close to them. Mm-hmm. But... They won, so everything's supposed to be fine. But melodrama provided an outlet for that. Yeah. I'm trying to think, what, what are some... When people ask, like, a modern example of melodrama, I always point to The Notebook, which I like a lot. I've still have never seen that. Oh, I um, still think you'd like it. I probably would. Can you think of, of some others? And I don't mean something like Far From Heaven, which is a throw. Right, yeah. I mean, like, modern-day noir. I guess, I guess Nicholas Sparks adaptations in general kind of have that quality to them. Yeah, but I even think of something like the master, um, hmm. which I think deals with a lot of the same emotions that classic melodrama does of a sense of impermanence and a sense of things transitioning, but not for, you know, not like in film noir where somebody's dying or somebody's on the run from a criminal activity, mm-hmm. but just because people can't quite figure out a way to relate to either their circumstances or the people around them. And it's, the acting too in that movie is very expressive and one could call it unrealistic. Um, but at least to me, very emotionally affecting and you get, it builds to a scene that isn't a climactic showdown, but it is a very honest confrontation between two people. You know, it's odd that, that, uh, for more than one lesson, we just talked about the master recently and it's so interesting at no point would I, would I consider that melodrama or at least I'm thinking of it in that context right. now, but, um, 
and it's weird. Like I, I don't also, I also don't think of like the performances as unrealistic. I merely think that these are like outsized personalities. That may be. And just like people that certainly in the case of like Philip Zimmer Hoffman, just that type of person would have to be a bigger than life personality. But then when you look at the Freddie Quell character, um, and you just realize like, yeah, but that's just him. You know, he's just a big guy. He's just over the top and that sort of thing. And so, and just like, yeah, I haven't really met anybody that acts like that, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. <laughs> so it's so strange to me that I that I think maybe because of some of it is the way that uh, a fairly straightforward way that um, Paul Thomas Anderson directs the movie. I feel like it, you know, with a lot of just in some cases, like uh, a lot of natural light and and just, uh, you know, oh, they're just in a house or something like that. But then. There are other moments like during the processing scene where it right. seems very heightened and, uh, quite a bit. And so, um, well, so I feel also, like that, that now that you mention it, I feel like that could count. Yeah. I mean, I would also kind of redefine the way we think of melodramatic acting. The traditional, at least what I have, I've learned, the traditional definition of melodrama is not this like, not necessarily anyway, this very florid style of uh, cinema or acting, but it's a fusing of music and drama. Mm-hmm. And it's either through the performance or through the camera work or through whatever, finding a way to rhythmically and musically express a dra- dramatic piece. Let me suggest this, my friend. Okay. Nightcrawler. <laughs> oh, you <laughs> As got we- to some, that's something, this was in my notes to bring up because you weren't here. I heard, the, I heard the episode. <laughs> we talked about Nightcrawler. We sure Scott did. And I. Yeah. And I'm not saying it as like a gotcha, but like it's, I hadn't thought of it until putting it that oh, way because I, I thought of the I was planning it as a gotcha. <laughs> oh, okay. I was all I was all Katie Couric asking Sarah Palin what newspaper she reads in my head. Just on the drive over here, I was like, I can't wait to lay the Nightcrawler bomb. <laughs> can't wait to see <laughs> on that motherfucker's face when I say Nightcrawler. Because well, the, I'm sorry I beat you to the punch. But <laughs> the word you used was presentational. Yes. You used it as a derogatory. Yes. Uh how do you define, how do you differ that from the theatrical things that you're defending? Um, I mean, in the end, it is going to be very subjective and I could just as easily say something that you'll just be like, well, what do you mean by that? But to me, um, so much of Nightcrawler is somebody on, I think the film experience podcast said that Jake Gyllenhaal's performance feels like he's constantly auditioning for the movie he's in. <laughs> and that's kind of way I, the way I feel about the movie on the whole. It's very <laughs> eager to sell itself. But isn't the character eager to tell himself? I don't think necessarily. Not after the first few minutes. Right after he's established, he just expects people to come to his level to where he sees himself. That's interesting. I think you and I approach the character very different ways. All right. Um, but certainly, uh, the reason, oddly enough, it wasn't even the the characters or their performances. Although now that I think of it in this ter- in these terms, you know, uh, Rene Russo is definitely this. Um, and then Jake Gyllenhaal as well. But I think what will put me over is when you mentioned the music. Mm-hmm. I, a lot of people have a problem with Nightcrawler's music. I think it's kind of amazing. I think there's a lot of really interesting choices there as far as, you know, to go back to what we were talking about, which is this is the story that the character is telling himself. And so this music being more and more inspirational as the character sinks deeper and deeper <laughs> into depravity uh, I know I remember a lot of people had a, a major problem with that. And I remember just thinking like, oh, no, but the music is telling us not unlike uh, the informant, which had, I think, a Marvin Hamlish yeah. score. And I remember a lot of people had a problem with it, and I thought, like, no, 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 this is not an instance where the music is being is is complimenting the movie. 
the music is informing us how we should view the events of the movie. And so I feel like that, uh, I'm trying to think, I feel like the informant, can, can, uh, can comedy be melodrama? Whoa. You just blowing my mind, man. Um, did I? Did I really? A little bit. Uh, no, I suppose so. I wouldn't necessarily. I, I still think the drama part is important in melodrama. That's true. Yeah, um, but those same forms can certainly apply. I mean, in terms of expressiveness. I mean, Charlie Chaplin is very a very musical comedian. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Lewis, in his own way, Jacques Tati too. Yeah, that's um, true. A lot of these physical comedians who also uh, design their not necessarily design their own sets, but their sets act as a part of the comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say they fit in the same mold, but I wouldn't call them melodrama. Okay. Yeah, because it, it almost feels like if you're trying to get a laugh from someone, it's probably going to be a little bit heightened anyway. Right. Um, it's hard to have just stone cold hard reality and be like, <laughs> isn't this funny? <laughs> it's, it's, it's not impossible, but it's difficult. Yeah, sometimes that can be the joke. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think actually a movie we discussed on the show, uh, When Evening Fell on Budapest or Metabolism, <laughs> that is very stone cold reality, but it's supposed to be very funny. Yeah. Um, I remember being funny for about yeah, the first half. Yeah. Um, yeah, I forgot what I was going to say, but something about, uh, getting back to Jerry Lewis and, uh, Charlie Chaplin as also you're skirting the nightcrawler issue. Okay. (laughs) Did did you have more to say? I'm sorry. I I, I feel like I won. Oh, okay. (laughs) I feel like I, well, everybody agreed on that last time anyway. So I don't know why I had to keep (laughs) rubbing it in. Um, something, I I don't know if we want to move on, but there was something when this, uh, when this topic came up earlier this week, I had it hasn't gone up yet, but the uh, my Monday movie mm-hmm. for next week um, is Jane Campion's In the Cut, hmm. a movie that I hate. I mean, sorry, a movie that I love. Sorry, <laughs> that everyone. Well, you know that thing I said. I meant yeah, say sorry. the exact I got because I got ahead of myself. A lot of people hate, and it's yes. like thirty five percent Rotten Tomatoes. Hmm. People just people think of it as her worst film. I think uh, in many ways, and I've loved it from the beginning, and I think. There are some movies that are, I'm not sure what the, there's, it's like a hidden theatricality or a subtle theatricality that I think people have a tr- have trouble reconciling themselves with. It's why I've always loved um, Public Enemies, a movie that I think is not realistic, but people expect it to be and think that it is while they're watching it, and they think that it's not working because it's not living up to what they think its realistic ambitions are. Well, and but they're not. They have an expectation of a gangster picture, and it's not that either. But that, it is not that. But that's not that's not what I think. I'm it still has here. the beats. It's got a lot of shootouts and sure, uh, yeah. Uh, but it's I, I mean it's also uh, it's also kind of sold as a biopic, which it's not. Right. Yeah. You don't learn. <laughs> it's definitely not that. Yeah. All the stuff uh, it's sold as definitely is not. <laughs> yeah. and that's not the fault of the film. But I think there are certain movies like In the Cut and like Public Enemies that people or maybe become too attached to whether or not this is realistic, whether or not this is living up to what I think it's supposed to be, that they ignore the fact that the things they're thinking of as shortcomings are actually the style of the movie. Yeah. And and there's a cognitive block there for them. I don't know if you guys have seen In the Cut. I have not. I have not. If you, uh, no, so you don't love it as much as I (laughs) Um, but you've both seen Public Enemies. Yes. It's been uh, a while, but... D- can you think of any example? Do you agree with my premise at all? That- oh, absolutely. I think that's one of the reasons that, say, uh, James Gray hasn't really flourished outside of a very niche and largely New York set of uh, critics. Uh-huh. Um, he's beloved in France, of course, because that's where they all are. Um, but uh, 
you know, even his movie that was supposed to be his big Oscar movie, The Immigrant, got basically shelved and barely released um, because there's just not that audience or that economic model anymore to support something a little bit more melodramatic. And it's not like The Immigrant or Two Lovers is like a Douglas Sirk movie, but it has it takes itself seriously, even though it's just about the emotional lives of these characters. And I think that rubs people these days the wrong way. I have uh, an analogy. Uh the way you were talking about public enemies and people's problems with it, it reminded me of something that is not a movie, but it also kind of ties into it. When Jen and I were in Switzerland and we went on various uh, castle tours, uh, the best one we, that we went on, best mostly because we weren't late and we were able to actually <laughs> spend some time there, um, <laughs> one section of the castle had... I mean, I, I don't think it was plaster, but they had like one wall was basically white and plastered up and it wasn't like the stone walls. Uh, and so we were listening to the audio tour and we arrived there. And I remember just as I was thinking like, well, this is boring, like <laughs> just a white wall. I've got white walls at home. Um, actually, no, I don't. We painted them because <laughs> they were too boring. <laughs> so, um, but I uh, just as I was thinking that, the audio comes on and says, now you're probably wondering <laughs> why this wall is white. Every castle looked like this. Every castle, for, a num- for any number of reasons, had a layer of, and I don't remember what it was, but it wasn't it obviously wasn't just like paint or something like that. It was, they didn't go down to uh, Home Depot right, to right. decide between <laughs> Sherwin Ivory Williams. and Eggshell. <laughs> right. <laughs> By the way, that logo for Sherwin-Williams is terrifying. Cover the world, and it looks like they're just pouring blood all over the globe. Anyway, <laughs> uh, go and look it up. It's it's uh, really unnerving. But um, but they said so. Let's just say plaster. That's not what it was. But like every every castle, both the interior and external exterior walls had a layer of this plaster stuff, partially for insulation and partially because that's it. Just it was viewed as looking better. Uh, to just have like, okay, we built a castle out of stone and now let's just leave it as stone was viewed as like, uh, poor and dumb. (laughs) And, but they said we did that. Like, so in restoring this castle, we chose to restore this section completely so that you had an idea of what castles looked like at the time. The reason that it does not look like a castle to you is because movies and, uh, and old photos and also old illustrations were so keen on a more dramatic view of a castle. And because that plaster stuff would like chip away. And so when people would go and visit a castle, Mm -hmm. they would just see the stone, the stuff that lasts. And then they would shoot a movie around there and they would use that as a very dramatic image of the time, because certainly we can't compare to that now. And so they said like, but the movie, but like castles, at the time looked a lot more like your modern day mansions than actual, than what we have come to view as castles. And so I found that interesting that what was reality would to me look not merely boring, but also not at all what we all just know the medieval castles looked like. And so in that same way, like, you know, in this case it was movie, they specifically cite movies, but also movies, set up a template for like, this is how, in the case of public enemies, like this is how a gangster acts. Mm-hmm. These are the beats. And, and like with a biopic, this is what a biopic looks like. And if it doesn't fall into that, not only is it not 
accomplishing its goals, but it also isn't realistic. We all know what realism looks like. It looks like that. It looks like Don, uh, Don Corleone, obviously, you know, and, uh, and it becomes a flaw for being maybe even more actually realistic than, uh, than movies that claim to be realistic. Uh, sorry, that was a long way to go. No, I apologize. It, it puts me in mind of something about the way we weirdly people expect movies about the past to look and act a certain way. Sure. As right. if, as if, like, but you couldn't have made movies back, you know, in the medieval <laughs> times that weren't. So just the fact that you're shooting things on film or digital, whatever, yeah. it doesn't matter. Like, it's already, th- that's anachronistic to begin with, which is why I've never understood. Woodcuts, that's what I like. Yeah. <laughs> I've never understood why people are so, so many directors and film watchers are against the idea of using very modern music right. in period pieces. I love anachronistic music because I know the movie was made now. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's, you're it's, not tricking me. I, it's okay. It's non-diegetic music. It's okay if it's if it, there's a synthesizer or whatever. Well, and there's this the, idea that like every orchestral instrument has been around since the dawn of time. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. If you're watching, I don't know, 10,000 BC or something, it's not like they had pianos then. <laughs> <laughs> they should just use uh, bones and rocks. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Get Tom Waits in there. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's... Second uh, Tom Waits reference. Like when I, I recently watched Chariots of Fire for the first time and okay. there's that uh, Vangelis score. And of course, everybody knows um, the primary theme from Chariots of Fire. Uh, but they did the whole score and it's very synthy. And I am one of those people that like it just, it takes me out of it. Now, what it might be, honestly, is that by using modern music, you're now dating the thing in a different way right. than yeah, the period that you're using, that, that, you're, yeah. that the story is taking place. So now it's, yeah. I'm watching something that takes place in the 30s, or, or the, the 20s, pardon me, uh, and I'm hearing m- modern music, quote-unquote, and now uh, all I'm thinking of is the 80s, but it's 2015. You know? So I feel like that could be a problem with it, but I don't um, know if it is. Like, I mean, you talk about modern audiences laughing at Rebel Without a Cause. Mm-hmm. It's like if you put in a, the tiniest bit of mental <laughs> legwork to, like, remind yourself when the movie was made, yeah. it all it all works to me. I mean, I haven't seen Chariots of Fire, so that's, you know, not the best example. But I don't – I guess I don't mind dated music if it's not – Shitty music. Well, and I, oh, oh, I don't mind dated anything. I mean, you're watching older movies to see an older perspective, and that can include any number of things. Yeah. That's not the only reason I watch older movies. That's the only reason I watch it. <laughs> I want a portrait of another time. Um, uh, but that brings me, speaking of older movies, um, something else that uh, is non-realistic that I feel like, I, I guess this just comes to, like, there are things that we, like I talked about earlier with uh, audiences not accepting color as being realistic at first. Mm-hmm. It's all, all of our opinions that we think are rock hard are all transient. We're all, everything's changing all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I think of, um, I somewhat recently watched uh, The Shopper on the Corner, which is a movie that takes place in Budapest, <laughs> and everyone talks with an American accent. Of course, accent. yeah. And, I think and, there's one guy... Well, the boss kind of does, and then uh, the shopkeepers always trying to keep out of trouble. They kind of have like a vaguely European accent. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But like, that's not not questionable. No one, right? No one, ca- no one cared. I think at the time, and now I guess we expect people to either do 
either i mean like if you're mel gibson making the passion of the christ to speak in aramaic <laughs> and have it all subtitled or to approximate the accent for right. some reason like or okay, just play it like, it, like it's okay yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that was my third thing you got ahead of me there was a third but yeah like why is it okay for this person if this movie takes place in germany why is it okay for this person to be talking speaking in english in a german accent like why would <laughs> yeah. they be doing that if they're german but that's like somehow more acceptable now uh i've completely forgotten there was another point that i was getting at now that i've completely forgotten about well i think people bring a lot of oh, oh i was gonna get at um i'll just be over here <laughs> sorry uh it's fine Valkyrie, which I didn't see. Yeah, I saw But I understand right. a lot of people had some problems with the fact that no one tries an accent. People just speak in their own accents. But the movie I did see that does that is The Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It doesn't bother me that Harvey Keitel talks like Harvey Keitel. Well, that doesn't bother me for a lot of reasons, but that's just because the movie is made with such a, like, it's a period piece, but it's made with such a modern sensibility. And it has Peter Gabriel doing a score that seems to be span all different times, which <laughs> uh-huh. I love by the way. Um, and by having like, it's, it's Americans and British, like, and in some, in the case of Harvey Keitel, kind of this New York type of accent. And it doesn't bother me at all. A lot of people have a big problem with it and it does not bother me one bit, partially because it's made with that scent. It's not, it doesn't feel like this, this boring, stolid, uh, is stolid a word? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think it's it, what you meant too. Okay, good. <laughs> this, uh, this stolid period piece, it's done with this vibrance that feels modern and thus to have characters speak in modern, in, in, in an American accent never bothered me one bit. Well, Scott, what say you about Last Temptation of Christ? Well, it's gotcha re- journalism. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> it's my favorite Martin Scorsese movie for one, but Mine also, well. oh, um, last week we talked about our least favorite Martin Scorsese movies. I don't know that I have a least favorite. I was thinking about that when you guys were talking about that. And but then, I think I'm with you on Last Temptation being my favorite. Yeah, yeah mine too. It's pretty great. Um, but also Gangs of New York is the worst. No. Um, <laughs> but it, I mean, okay, what is it? Hold on. I, do, I, like I said, I don't have a least favorite. I Did don't you see Hugo. Kundun? Yeah, I love Hugo. I haven't mm, seen Kundun. You're incorrect. Um, <laughs> but I saw it in 3D and you did not. So, That's true. Uh, you, you know, know what? That is go. true. Um, okay. Sorry. Last what the hell is it getting at? Oh yeah. It requires like so little imagination to get over that hurdle of hearing people speak in an accent that you're not expecting them to speak in. And it reminds me of this, uh, article Matt Zeller sites wrote a couple of years ago about, I can't remember what spurred on the article, but he was telling a story about a film professor of his showing sinking in the rain for the first day of some film history class. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Singing in the Rain. It's a great movie. It's a fun movie. Good way to kick off a film class. But the audience of college students just like didn't get it and call it unsophisticated because it's just like so exaggerated and kind of goofy. Um, and according to Matt, um, the film professor just very solemnly said he gave this long lecture about, you know, appreciating things from different times and bringing yourself into their shoes. Um, and he concluded by saying the movie is not unsophisticated. You are. And Matt said that professor was not hired back the next semester, (laughs) but, um, yeah, because he, you know, took college students to task and you can't do that in colleges because people are paying for you to uphold their beliefs. (laughs) Um, but just that whole notion that, like you said earlier, these notions of entertainment, of realism, of theatricality, they do change. I mean, last week you guys were talking about film noir as this thing that, isn't very realistic, but at the time was often noted for its gritty realism. Um, and crime films of that whole era were noted that way, regardless of whether they fit into film noir or not. Um, they could be as, you know, shadowy and have the best dialogue in the world. And part of that is actually because people did speak a lot better back then. Mm-hmm. This is often forgotten that elocution and, uh, you know, expressing yourself in a 
cohesive way. Where there were things that were taught, especially among upper classes, you know, at a very young age. What are you talking about? What? <laughs> yeah. Hmm? Here, we, here we, we, we've been mumbling through That's, this thing for half years. I know. Um, I, I'm certainly guilty of that too. But the point is that people being able to form a cohesive thought that was witty and clever was not like unheard of in the 1940s. Right, no. That's like when you watch the uh, the Ken Burns Civil War documentary and those mm. like letters from so these are like barely right. educated soldiers <laughs> and then these like florid beautiful like bits of yeah. prose. Um, they would look at this soundboard and think it was witchcraft, and yet <laughs> right. somehow they yeah. speak better than the three of us put together. Um, but you know what? I'm glad you mentioned the idea of uh, things being seen as realistic in their time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because uh, speaking of people being unsophisticated or thinking they're more sophisticated (laughs) than they are, I've uh, often had a problem with how much people love The Wire. I know we're a movie podcast, but Mm -hmm. TV, let's just face it. It's 2015. We all watch TV, right? (laughs) It's Um, so good these days. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's better than movies, I'm not being told. (laughs) You know, I'm Uh, going to go out on a limb and say we are in a golden age of television. Golden age. Golden age. Um. But uh, the I wire, don't mean to be gritty and edgy, but I just <laughs> want to put that out there. The Wire is m- merely very good. <laughs> it's not. It's not a ma- masterpiece like people treat it, in my opinion. Um, and part of that is, I think that it. I think a lot of viewers think of The Wire as being a realistic TV show, whereas I don't see it that way. I see it as you know borrowing heavily from a lot of standard crime genre tropes and injecting real commentary and insight into that. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, this is a show that had essentially like a, uh, high noon style standoff in an alleyway in season <laughs> three between Omar and brother Muzon. Have you guys both watched the wire? No, not all. Uh, yes. Okay. Um, so, uh, I, I wonder if people maybe in decades will think, think of the wire as being more theatrical than they think of it. Oh, sure. I no. mean, realism always ages the fastest. I mean, NYPD Blue is noted for its, you know, yeah. gritty realism. I mean, I haven't seen that much of it, but what I've seen, you know, it just feels very network TV of the 80s. And now we have all of a conception of that. But at the time, it was noted as this golden age of TV because it was this new form of gritty realism. And I will say that, oddly enough, so we've talked about two cop shows I've gone back and watched, I own the first five seasons of Law and Order. So that's 90 through 95. That's... Uh-huh. You know, definitely that will age. The realist that like it feels genuinely realistic, like the way the and I say this, I'm not a cop, so I don't know. But just like <laughs> at the very least, how much paperwork they have to fill out and stuff like that to me is okay. very that seems real. And and I think with The Wire, I think it's to go back to that, I, that I, the the word that you use, like because it's gritty and we see that. Oh, the the you know the these slums of of Baltimore. They look they don't look stylistically gritty. They don't look uh, Dickensian gritty. They look like oh, that's like actual trash and that's right. gross. And so I think people took that and said like oh, this is a very realistic show. But it's, if you look at the content, it's a show. It did it you know seemed, brother, brother Muzone and in fact right. uh, Omar <laughs> him, himself yeah. like is completely. It's the show that did a scene where the only word of dialogue is fuck yeah right, over yeah. and over again like that's <laughs> and nothing could be more like yeah. artificial than that yeah it's a wonderful scene that is very well executed but no one would ever say um, like only if the characters and they might. Only if the characters made a bet beforehand, like, <laughs> like, you know what? style. Exactly. Like, which, which, you know what? If it showed them doing that, 
That I buy 100%. Uh, that actually made me think of another show you mentioning, like the paperwork and stuff with cops, um, is Scrubs, which a few nurses have told me is a far more realistic depiction of a hospital than, you know, your ERs or your Grey's Anatomies or something, largely because there isn't like a life-threatening crisis every few seconds. Mm-hmm. And it mostly deals with people trying to figure out how to get insurance companies to go along with the treatment. Oh, wow. Um, but uh, yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that um, because I haven't watched that much Scrubs. Oh, it's, but, it's such um, a great show. I don't know. My mom was a nurse or she is a nurse, but uh, she was a nurse when ER was on Mm -hmm. and she quite liked ER because maybe I'm talking the wrong nurses, (laughs) but uh, I don't know. Um, Maybe. Yeah. I mean, ER was definitely could be very presentational to use your word Mm -hmm. uh, at times. Um, We mentioned ER briefly in the movie journal tonight. Uh, We did an ER kind of night. Uh, what yes. did we say? We talked about uh, Mimi Letter oh, that's doing right. the yes. maybe greatest ER episode of all time from season yeah. one called Love's Labor's Lost. Yeah. When that, that comet, Bradley, when Bradley that comet hits the hits yeah. the ocean. Yeah. And then and then George Clooney rides a nuclear missile from a helicopter <laughs> and I'm out of Mimi Letter. <laughs> I, got, I got nothing. I'm sorry. I, I forgot the other one too. I only had Deep Impact. Um, She's directed some leftovers. You can throw something. Oh, there you Yeah. Uh, no, I'm, I've talked myself into a coin. I have no idea. What we were even <laughs> well, we've been talking about. mostly about uh, films from the United States and uh, some Italian neorealism stuff. But I also want to talk about two other countries, um, France, which I think excels at sort of an unreality that's still informed by a sense of realism. That, especially by the time you get into the French New Wave, there's mm-hmm. a lot of location shooting. But the locations are used in a very expressive way. And actually, that goes back to the early 30s with like Jean Vigo and Jean Renoir. Um, using real locations, but they almost look like sets. You know, they're almost too perfect for the scenes they're trying to create. And then Godard creating um, musicals and uh, Jacques Demy too, creating musicals on real streets. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of mixture of reality and theatricality that I find more and more every year very effective. It allows for the spontaneity of real life, but yeah. still there's clearly such an elaborate design and the aesthetics of it can be so moving you know what's the best it's the opposite of musical on real streets is have you seen donkey skin no it's oh a, wait yes i have so it's a like fairy tale yeah. movie that has like it so it takes place in you know this sort of vaguely medieval right. time but it has a, like a helicopter show yes. at one point. <laughs> I, I love donkey skin so much i need to revisit it I, I was a little unsure about it at first but now i have the blu-ray i'll go back to it um but the other country i wanted to mention was japan which has like you, yeah, that was on my list to talk about too. To as far as you can get the two ends of realism versus theatricality, you know, on one on the theatrical end, you have like Onibaba or Kuroneko or these uh, even Ugetsu in its own way. These very kind of poetic, very expressive, um, and to some modern viewers, almost off-puttingly so. But then they have such a great tradition of social realism of these household movies that uh, Ozu would make, and especially this guy I've become obsessed with, um, Mikio Naruse, whose films from the... If he traced his films from the 30s through the 60s, and he made at least one film every year, he made like 92 movies between 1930 Hmm. and 1967. So they're so frequent that you can trace the evolution of Japan over, you know, 35 years or so. And you start to see the way Japan starts out as a very rural, but starting to be urban-infected, starting to be slightly capitalistic... And then by the time you get to the 1960s, all his films are urban and the country is just this like way for urbanites to retreat or escape from their problems. Um, so that's another way in which realism can over time become a story unto itself almost. Um, but even, uh, 
where where on that spectrum then of uh or i guess you didn't even discover it as a spectrum but more about like two poles um which uh which end does kurosawa belong to that's a good question because he could be definitely the th- uh, performance style in particular is very theatrical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, um, even in his more quote unquote realistic or down to earth films, the yeah the performances that's exactly what I was going to get. At, yeah, is the, that he gets theatrical performances out of out of the actors, and I think that's a uh, having been a teenager getting into <laughs> international cinema, it's a hurdle to get over. Because yeah, it's for sure. So not what we're used to. Well, and often even though, even though you know he would often make like period films. And so you have people wearing like loincloths and fighting with swords and stuff and just like, and you're not used to that. So that seems unrealistic, but I feel like he has shot those with, he shot those with a fair amount of realism, just utilizing places that were actually there and making it feel like a very, like a very lived in world. So within that to have these, you know, Toshiro Mufuni like over the top performances, that for me was so difficult to reconcile those two things. The like the way this movie is shot doesn't seem like this performance belongs or if he was going if if this performance is supposed to inform how I'm supposed to view the world, he needs to heighten everything <laughs> to get there. Like it took me a long time to not merely get over it but actually embrace it. It took even longer for that. But it's kind of like with the elements at different uh, you know, calibrations, it's the same thing we're talking about with public enemies. Mm which is a movie that also has very like Michael Mann style, very obsessive, obsessively realistic settings and yet makes no uh, attempt to hide the fact that it's shot digitally. Uh, it's I incredibly was, digital looking. Right. Yeah, very much so. Uh, and that's, again, that's a problem for a lot of people. I was thinking actually uh, a moment ago uh, about Michael Mann, but I don't, I don't want to get away from France or Japan. We can, we can stick with that. Continue. Yeah, um, certainly. I mean, not only Naruse, but also Ozu was very much working in that kind of uh, household drama form. And um, yeah, I mean, I can get kind of down on realism, but it's, when I remembered Naruse, especially, um, there's a sense in which reality, like I said, can inform the drama to a greater extent than just being identifiably realistic. Um, the aesthetics of, I guess, Japan at the time were because of that kind of country and city mix were automatically very compelling. You know, it's not uh, a form or a, what am I thinking of? A locale, a type of locale that we're used to these days when there is now such a clear divide between the two. Um, if you look at the films of the thirties, you know, there'd be near skyscrapers, you know, 10 story tall buildings in the middle of practically fields. Uh, you said something just now that fascinated me. You mentioned the idea of being down on realism. Is it realism that you're down on, or is it people's feeling that realism or something, or the accusation of something being unrealistic being like the the height of insults, you know, or just the feeling of like, oh, well, in the same way that people, that melodrama has become an, a negative criticism, right. that saying that yeah. something is realistic is viewed as a compliment. Whereas what we're talking about, is just like, it's just one more tool. It's just one more style that a person can use. Is it, do you have more problem with people's attitude about realism or actual realism? I think 
one informs the other. I mean, I think you get filmmakers starting to get a little bit more hesitant of going too far with their stuff. Mm. Um, I realized the point I was thinking of making earlier when we were talking about comedy is now I, it's sort of tapered off, but in the uh, mid two thousands, the rise of Judd Apatow and mm. that style informing so many comedies for about five years there, where it's just about people saying funny things. And that's the yeah. entire joke for the entire movie. Whereas, you know, now Jerry Lewis is not accepted by most Americans, it's getting a little bit better, but as a great comedian. But to me, he's doing so many more things than just having funny lines. And the jokes are so varied and so unexpected that that kind of invention to me is automatically more compelling, I guess. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's why the Marx Brothers were great, because they had like the guys who did the physical stuff. Right. And they had the guys who did, you know, I need to go back funny. And then they had Zeppo. Who, <laughs> <laughs> Someone needed to move the plot along. Um, yeah, I need to go back and watch the Mark, Mark's Brothers stuff because when I saw it in early college, I was probably just not ready for it. That's uh, that's possible. I think I the first Mark's Brothers thing I saw was only a few years ago. It was Duck Soup. Yeah. And uh, and I remember I'd, I wouldn't say I wasn't ready for it, but there were moments when, again, you know, it's interesting. There's realism and then there's the reality of the film. And I think that's that's a thing that people talk about when they talk about fantasy or horror or superhero or action that like people are willing to go. I think people are more willing to go even than maybe even they realize they're willing to go wherever the filmmaker takes them. But when the filmmaker starts breaking his own rules, not as like a, a, a choice, but also but as just like, well, I don't really know what else to do. It's like, no, you like there, there's a realism. Can there's you give always some examples a, of what you're talking about here. Well, it's like. Okay, well, one is, and I know, David, you like this movie, but, like, uh, The Lady in the Water, where the rules always well, I, seem to be changing. I don't hate The Lady you in the Water. You love Lady in the Water the way I love Ang Lee's Hulk. Okay. Which I actually do love. Um, so, it, clearly, it's your favorite movie. Um, but The Lady in the Water is a good movie for this conversation. Have you seen it, Scott? I've not, unfortunately. And I feel like that's one where... Like, I'm willing to follow M. Night Shyamalan wherever he wants to go. But within that, I do believe that while it doesn't necessarily have to be, like, hardcore realism, but I do think that there's something to be said for anchors and adhering to the reality that you've created as opposed to just, like, well, it's fantasy anyway, so we're just going to do this now. It's like, that's fine, but you, I need something to... I need a jumping-off point, even in the midst of a, a silly, a, a seemingly... Silly idea. Yeah, but I I think that gets to... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think for me, actually, that is what I object to more than anything, is deciding that there needs to be a set defined number of rules for any world, quote-unquote world you're creating, as though the goal of any movie should be to create a world in the first place. But it actually reminded me of this inane list that's driving me crazy that people keep sharing of the rules that Chuck Jones set out for the Roadrunner cartoons. (laughs) as though it wasn't something that he realized later that he was doing, but actually sat down when they were working with a shoestring budget and decided from the first Roadrunner cartoon that was tossed off for a very, like I said, a very small amount of money, um, they just had to fill a programming slot, as though he sat down and came up with 11 rules for this world that he was going to create over the next decade or so. (laughs) That kind of stuff drives me crazy. I love that. I I mean, I I love, I agree with you, because yeah, that drives me, I've, there's sometimes uh, I hate the word uh, world building. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People use it constantly as a. I think post Lord of the Rings, it's become like the new obsession. In- yeah. Um, 
uh, not, I'm not into it. I'm not into it the way it's used. I feel like it's an interesting concept, but it's yeah. been defined so narrowly. Um, it's not inherently but, a virtue that you're pursuing this. But I think what you're talking about in terms of anchors, mm. I think, gets to something that I think we were getting to before with melodrama and musicals and the idea of maybe aesthetic and behavioral realism has gone out the window, but there's some sort of emotional slash psychological realism or mm-hmm. honesty maybe is the better word than realism. Sure. Honesty is a word that I tend to use, maybe overuse when I write <laughs> movie reviews. It's like honesty is something that is good and that I always treasure in movies. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that is me being a poor writer or if that's just my point of view as a critic, but, um, probably that, uh, but I, 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 movie that I had, uh, in my mind, I hadn't written it down to talk about on this episode, uh, is Moulin Rouge, a movie that I love so much mm-hmm. and is, uh, you know, overtly, constantly, unrelentingly theatrical, yeah. um, to the point where, you know, it turns people off and there were a lot of walkouts in the movie theater when I hmm. saw it. Uh, it was a big hit movie too. Uh, yeah, but I, I don't know. I saw, I saw a matinee screening, which means oh, yeah. a lot of older people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, like, oh, this is a remake of that movie with Jose Ferrer. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> but it's about a guy who's yearning for something because he's a young man and he has ideals and he's yearning for them. He falls in love the way a young person does. Like you were talking about, mm-hmm. or I use the term eternal teenager. We were talking about these melodrama gets these things right. that are always inside us even as we grow older and maybe temper our expression of them a little bit. We still have these pure emotions inside of us. And mm-hmm. Moulin Rouge is about this guy. He falls in love in the way that a teenager falls in love. Right. And then she's dying, and it's literally the worst thing that could ever happen. And mm-hmm. so as as crazy and over the top as Moulin Rouge is, I find it really affecting and emotional right. because it has maybe like three very simple and straightforward emotions that it that it uh, taps into and you know and mainlines them for two hours and ten minutes. And okay, and, and I, so that movie is not realistic as far as the style, but there's a realism to how these characters are approaching one another, even though it's completely over the top. Again, it's it's kind of the inner thing made uh, external. What I'm talking about is that like there's a like they've created a world both uh, stylistically and emotionally. And I feel like they need to. So even within that world, there is a sense of realism. If Ewan McGregor killed Nicole Kidman for no particular reason, <laughs> then they're, then that's not realistic. I don't believe that in the midst of this batshit crazy movie where where we're being asked to accept anything and I'm accepting anything. There are still some things that are unacceptable because they don't adhere to the realism of the film as unrealistic as it may be as far as like uh, the world that we live in. And so that's what I mean when I talk about, I don't mean to talk about like rules, like everything should adhere to this thing, but I think movies inherent uh, and maybe storytelling in general, but um, inherently the successful ones will do this. Will they won't just keep throwing you into chaos. I don't remember why I, Oh yes. I brought this up when talking about the Marx brothers that like the zaniness of it. I got caught up in, which is fine. And then they brought it to a halt so that Groucho could just tell his little jokes to this one woman (laughs) and just static shot. And the jokes are funny, but, and I don't view it as a flaw. It's just what the Marx brothers do. And that's what his comedy was. And so it's not a bad thing, but it took me 
a moment to, to but get over aren't it. the things that he's saying as zany in their own way as what you just saw? Uh, I guess so, except it's just, you know, imagine just, like, constant movement, but, like, stylistically. Let me rephrase what I'm saying, okay. I guess. If we didn't have, an, like, the a movie surrounding that scene mm-hmm. that was, again, to use the word zany, but to use the word of the episode theatrical. Sure. Right? And then he just started talking to this woman that way. He'd be a psychopath and an asshole, right? Doesn't that make his the Groucho Marx style of humor acceptable? Well, I will say that the Marx brothers are psychopaths and assholes <laughs> uh, in the world that they live in, uh, but we're all on board with them, right? And so I'm actually uh, I'm actually more okay with it. But you know what? That brings me to a movie that I didn't think of to talk about, but is a great example because if you go back to my review from a couple years ago of uh, the comedy. Okay, and I'm very excited to see. I'm seeing Entertainment uh, this weekend. Um, the director's follow up. I can't remember his name. Rick got something. me. I never saw the comedy. Oh, okay. Um, my take on the comedy is that it's essentially like, what if a character that Bill Murray played in the '80s, <laughs> like from Stripes or Ghostbusters, lived in the real world? Yeah, he would be the worst person possible. Mm-hmm. Just completely. Unemo- like emotionally distanced from everything that's happening, no matter what it is, sarcastic about everything, and always just going for the joke before actually feeling any emotions. Yeah. It would be scary to be around this person, yeah, or, or depressing at the least. And I feel like that's what the comedy is about. And I feel like it actually that's a movie that actually fits very well into this uh, conversation. And but I feel like I'm the only person at the table who saw it. Well, there's a flip side to that. <laughs> which is one of the best Simpsons episodes ever featuring a character named Frank Grimes, (laughs) who is, you know, you, and that's the thing you accept the reality of the Simpsons as over the top and cartoonish, of course, as, as it is. And suddenly Homer's behavior makes a certain degree of sense because this is the world we're living in. Then Frank Grimes shows up (laughs) who is also cartoony in his own way, but his life is our life. His world is our world. And now he's in the world of Homer Simpson and he just can't take it. He just goes completely insane. And when he, when, you know, Homer should have died, I think in the, I think in that actual episode, Lenny and Carl make, have made, have counted how many times Homer should have died. Uh, uh-huh. But he just, he never does. Meanwhile, grimy as Homer uh-huh. calls him, uh, makes he does one thing that is death defying, and indeed uh, he dies. <laughs> and just like, and I always thought that was a really fun deconstruction of the show itself, <laughs> and and also, and also I think a deconstruction of what we as viewers are willing to go along with and not even question. You know, just if as long as I think there's a consistency to the world that has been created. About that consistency, though, one of the things that's most affecting to me more and more is actually inconsistency and characters expressing contradictory desires and acting contradictorily, because I think that in itself is fairly realistic. Absolutely. In its own way. Um, I unfortunately can't think of any films offhand. I, I guess there's a way that, uh, well, Jean-Luc Godard plays with a lot. Um, it's all over contempt. Um, my girlfriend often makes fun of it by saying that there's a whole slew of French films in which people just say, I love you, I hate you, over and over again. <laughs> but who hasn't felt both of those things at once, you know? Oh, sure. Um, I apparently feel that way about In the Cut. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you say it wouldn't make sense for Ewan McGregor to suddenly kill Nicole Kidman, on some level I could see that working. <laughs> oh, the minute I said it, I was like, <laughs> well, hang on now. Um, 
But I feel, but it would be, it would be jarring. But that's the thing. If the film then became about that, then I think we'd be okay with it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, is the like he loves her so much, he killed her, and you know what? Given the heightened emotion that we've seen, I buy it. Uh, but if like if he killed her and then everything went along as planned, <laughs> as though that didn't happen and it's fine, I think that would have been jarring. And that's we're not adhering to the to the reality of the or the emotional reality of the. That film. does sound like an amusing movie, though. <laughs> oh, I'd see that all day long. I love it. Um, um, we should probably be steering towards sure. wrapping okay. up at a certain point. But um, I feel like we've taken this premise that we laid out of theatricality versus realism and essentially said what Scott said at the beginning is a lot of people's opinion that it's all theatricality, that it's all a construct. <laughs> Are there any things we can think of that we actually do consider realism? I mean, certainly those early Lumiere Brothers documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know that uh, back when uh, one of the first times we had Matt Champagne on, he was talking about the work of Frederick Wiseman. Oh, yeah. But uh, but even then, like, there's that argument. It's like, yeah, but the camera is still present and people know it. Yeah. And so as people well, are walking and also by. He's editing the movie to create certain conclusions. Sure. I mean, especially um, at Berkeley, which is this four hour movie about the campus of Berkeley. Yeah. Not um, worth your time, by the way. I did not like that. Oh, really? I really liked it. Um but as much as that seems like a premise that could go any number of directions, to me it had a very cohesive vision mm-hmm. of this world. I, I just didn't like... It's just my own problem. I didn't like any of the people. Well, like it's yeah. Either I think that's... A, like aging hippies who right. really lost their idealism, or it's the students who are... are needlessly idealistic. <laughs> yeah, who have the <laughs> idealism that they don't know where to put yeah. anywhere and don't know how to express. It was... Yeah, it was four hours of me being either like alternately bored and annoyed. I did watch it in one hour chunks, with, which may have helped. <laughs> probably did help. Yeah. Boy, that sounds rough. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I feel like uh, jumping into documentary is uh, the easiest thing. But as right. far as as far as like narrative films, it's it's tough to say. I mean, it'd be easy to say Bicycle Thieves or right. something like that, or more modern uh, Wendy and Lucy. Sure. I think of sometimes. I, when I think of uh, when I think of like a realistic comedy, I go to my favorite movie of 2013, I believe. Uh, Enough said. Which again, there's even a premise that yeah, is, it's that's a very a, romantic like comedy premise. Yeah. Uh, but the way that it's shot, and then the performances themselves, and the di- and and the way the characters are written, they feel like characters that you would know, or characters that you do already know. Right. And so I feel like that that's pretty close. And when I think of Captain Phillips, that seems especially that last scene where he's being examined, you know, that feels very realistic partially because for one, one half of it is realistic, which is the nurse examining him is a real nurse asking the questions that she normally asks right. the way she normally asks them. So I almost feel like you almost have to inject actual reality into these things uh, it, as much as you can. I think of like uh in one of the most theatrical movies ever made, <laughs> Apocalypse Now, I think of Martin Sheen like crying on the floor, uh, calling someone an asshole. Well, he's calling Coppola an asshole, <laughs> and they chose to keep that in. Um, he doesn't specifically say Coppola is an asshole, right. but it's just like it's genuinely Martin Sheen having a breakdown. But then it's the realization he wouldn't have that breakdown if he wasn't making this movie right now, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, is there something? Maybe this is just the word that I've used. To go back to something I already said, the word that I've used to help myself, maybe it is helpful, is 
Do you guys agree with me that the word honesty is maybe more helpful and useful than the word realism? It, I, too, prize it like above anything else for movies. Um, I remember a few years ago, right after I got out of college, some, like somebody I knew I was into movies, but they weren't really that into movies. In fact, they thought, of all things, Benjamin Button was too racy for the movies. Um, but, um, <laughs> was it Benjamin Button you were talking to? Because I feel like that's the only person. <laughs> um, but she was genuinely asking, you know, what I look for in a movie. And I said, honesty. And I was trying to explain. And it was very clear she didn't understand where I was getting at. <laughs> but I definitely agree that if you can sense there's some more true that the film is coming from, that goes a long way. Yeah, I, I'd say that's that's about right. The other word that I think of, but I feel like is probably subservient to the concept of honesty, is uh, organic. If something organically happens, and I think that goes to what I was talking about, which is whether it be a world that's created or a story that's being told or a character that's being portrayed, there's what is organic to them. Even if they're doing something completely contradictory to what we would come to expect from them, there's still a way to do it that is organic, and I think that speaks to an honesty on the part of the writer, director, and actor. Yeah, I think you're right that it's the one, that organic is a subset of the other, because I often, when I'm watching a movie that I like, I will think of the word organic, but I will not put it in my review, because I often feel like I, that's, I'm not able to back it up. (laughs) What I mean, like it feels organic to me, (laughs) but I can't can't prove that. Yeah. Yeah. So I write about honesty instead. Uh, what is on your uh, notes that you needed to get to that we haven't gotten to? Um, I guess I, I would want to mention a few more movies that use real locations in kind of expressive ways. Um, for the website, actually, I reviewed a collection of early Max Sennett shorts, which were all shot in an... I mean, some were used on sets, but mostly shot in around Los Angeles. And they go to, like, Echo Park and the downtown area. And, and one level, it's just cool to see what the world looked like 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you'll see people in the background who... You know, they're not extras. They're just people walking by that day and they like look into the camera (laughs) to see what's going on. But at the same time, it's like the wildest comedy that's ever been put on film. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. the conclusion of one of the movies involves a man holding on to a rolling piano that's rushing down a hill that has a bomb on it. And also there's a monkey riding the piano with him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That seems like that's Max Senate. If ever there was pretty much. Let's just do everything. Can I go back to your favorite movie of all time? Nightcrawler. Um, (laughs) In terms of using relocations in a way that is not realistic. Yeah. Or, uh, and I feel like as film technology has advanced or maybe not advanced is the right word, but there's more, there's a more, there's a wider range of things you can do. Nightcrawler takes place largely in loosely my neighborhood, maybe a little mm-hmm. bit more studio city than North Hollywood, but a lot of it is in my neighborhood mm-hmm. and there are, Things that I recognize, like the Witch Witch Sandwich Place right. mm-hmm. at Ventura and Laurel Canyon, but they're colored or color-timed in a way that they almost look like neon or glowing or cartoonish. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Actually, there's this movie that just came out, Tangerine, um, takes place like blocks from my apartment. And like donut time. Yeah, right at donut time. That is literally blocks from my apartment. And it was very weird to see this world that I'm very familiar with, but yeah. it is also, you know, shot anamorphic. So it's got kind of stretched out and also kind of blown out, but uh-huh. it's a very similar thing. Yeah. I used to work right up the street from donut time and then I would catch the bus. Right. Oh yeah. Right where donut time is. <laughs> yeah. Donut you, time for those who don't know, I don't know. Tyler's never been a Hollywood resident. No. Like I am, but, uh, donut time is the donut place at the corner of Santa Monica and Highland where, uh, a lot of transsexual prostitutes 
together. Hot. <laughs> and they used to, and used to also include the Del Taco parking lot across the street, but now it's a Walgreens. It's not a Del Taco anymore. Sellouts. Yeah, that Del Taco was a part of very much part of my formative <laughs> Years as a you're weirdly Angelino. attached to a corporate chain. <laughs> Donut time has some some authenticity to it. I don't know about you're Del right. Taco. I I do feel weirdly attached to Del Taco, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> Del Taco and Jack in the Box are fast food chains that they don't have in the Midwest generally, except for some reason for St. Louis, where I'm from. Really, and so I always felt like when I moved to Los Angeles, seeing Del Taco and Jack in the Box, it felt like. Oh, it's this like piece of home. Like, oh, I fit in here. They're like, uh, I know what Del Taco is. So, anytime you go into a Saint, into a into a Del Taco, it's like a you're like you're going into an embassy, right? Is that <laughs> it? <laughs> That's exactly it's safe it. ground. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there are any Del Tacos left in St. Louis. Actually, uh, anything else on your list? Yeah, uh, just the opposite of that kind of uh, sets that are made to look as cities. I thought of Gangs of New York to actually go back to Scorsese and uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Um, Gangs of New York, I think, is trying to pass off a sense of realism. But then the coolest part of that DVD is a special feature where Martin Scorsese just walks around the set. And you realize that they actually built the entirety of that city that they did. And it's just very cool. And then Eyes Wide Shut gets, or at least at the time, got knocked for having too wide of sidewalks for being New York City. (laughs) Um, But I I do like it when people create cities as a set. Jacta T2. Have you seen One from the Heart? Yes. It's great. The... That like that movie, people hate it, and for reasons that are stupid. <laughs> and there, that movie accomplishes so much. Let's bring in Tom Waits a third time. Right. Uh, Oscar nominated score, by yeah. the way. Um, but like visually, and as far as production design, it's one of the most marvelous movies I've I, ever seen. I wouldn't say I love it. I think it's a cool movie. There's mm. a part of me that can never think of Frederick Forrest as anything but the neo-Nazi and falling down. Yeah. Singing, <laughs> like, singing, you are my sunshine. Right. I think of him <laughs> as being like, think about it. From falling down. <laughs> well, I, I like that Coppola, who was so identified with the new Hollywood movement, which was in some ways about this kind of gritty realism went very theatrical in the eighties between that and the outsiders, outsiders and yeah. Rumblefish, which mm-hmm. is maybe my favorite of his films. I love Rumblefish so much. Um, even Peggy Sue got married, which has real locations, but is very kind of airy, almost fantastic. The movie is wonderful. Uh, Tucker is great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's interesting that he went so extreme. Now what is Tucker direction. about? Uh, it's about a man in his dream. Okay. Got it. Thank yeah. you. All right. What, what's next? <laughs> that's all I got. Okay. That, that's the important stuff anyway. All right. Well, this is fun. Yeah. I mean, in Battleship Retention fashion, we did I, not I'm not even 100% sure what we talked about. I don't know what our topic was. <laughs> we didn't learn anything. It's like an episode of Seinfeld. Um, <laughs> but you can find us at BattleshipRetention.com. That's where you can find all of our movie reviews and such. What's up this week in terms of movie reviews? I reviewed Cop Car, mm-hmm. The Diary of a Teenage Girl, one of the best films of the year so far, I think. And uh, The Gift, mm-hmm. Rudy, Rudy reviewed uh, Fant Forstick mm-hmm. for us. I'm not sure what else is up. That's it. Uh, I think that might be all it. Right. So the go to battleshipretention.com for that. You can uh, also find all sorts of home video reviews and links to our other podcasts and probably more stuff coming soon, right? That's what we talked about. Yeah, so much Off-line. stuff. Absolutely. More, more fun stuff at battleshipretention.com coming soon. You can uh, email us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Davey Pretension. You can find, follow uh, Tyler on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Now, Tyler, you have another podcast. Mm-hmm. It's called More Than One Lesson. What's going on this week? Uh, this week, uh, Josh and I talk about 
the film Love and Mercy about uh, oh. Brian Wilson with the very unlikely companion film Spider, directed by David Cronenberg. <laughs> That's very interesting. It. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen Spider in a long time. Uh, my other podcast is about television. It's called Hey, Watch This. This week, we are talking about the premiere of Difficult People on Hulu. Hmm. And we are talking about Married on FX because I didn't feel like subjecting Paul to Project Runway. <laughs> so check out uh, Hey, Watch This. Uh, check out all that. Um, Scott, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow. That's R-A-I-L of Tomorrow. Um, I write, of course, for Battleship Retention. I recently posted a review of Jim Cohen's new movie, Counting, which would fit in the discussion very well, actually. People should check that movie out when they can. It's a very limited release. But also his last film, um, Museum Hours is very much about this uh, divide between theatricality and realism, and that's available on Fandor, I know. Maybe even Netflix, too, but that's a wonderful movie. Um, besides that, I also write for CriterionCast.com and host their uh, mainline episodes. We recently talked about The Double Life of Veronique, um, which is a wonderful movie, and everyone should listen to our episode on that. And I can't remember what I've written for them recently, but probably something, so go there. When are you going to have more guests on the Criterion Cast? Mm, I can think of two that you should have on. <laughs> we're we're working that out. We're getting there. Have you done an episode about the Friends of Eddie Coyle yet? No. I, I need to see that movie again. I didn't really like it the first time. Well, that is crazy talk. I know. That is crazy talk. I, I do need to borrow that from you, David. Uh, I, I feel like I'd love it. Yeah, I think you would. Um, but uh, yeah, if you do an episode on the Friends of Eddie Coyle. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Should I call a friend of Scott and I? <laughs> That's right. All right. Mm, David, Thanks. that could be an indictment. He might not call you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being here, Scott. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 